You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Todd Kilmeyer. I am serve as one of the pastors here at FBC, and today we will be reading from uh, the scriptures in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. I mean, exalted, excuse me. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. Uh, we thank you uh, that you are here with us. Lord, let us glean from you this morning. Let us uh, put aside the things that distract us and let us focus on uh, you and your uh, sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We thank you so much for who you are and that we get to glorify you this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Todd. All right, good morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. Todd read the first portion of it, the majority of the passage, and we want to take a few minutes and think about what God has for us uh, from this passage. If you go to someplace new, a uh, new restaurant, a uh, new campground, new vacation spot, a new house, whatever it might be, uh, you're always sort of evaluating it. You go there and you're going to decide if, um, if it was what you expected and what you wanted. So I don't know if you've ever been to a place and you get there and you, you're maybe sort of excited to try a new place to eat and you get there and you eat and you leave and somebody asks, well, how was it? And you say, well, it wasn't really what I expected. I mean, is that right? You know, I mean, it didn't storm out. I didn't throw the food against the wall and storm out. Uh, but it wasn't really what I expected. Or other times you might come back and say, well, what did you think? Holy cow, man, I didn't expect that. That place is way better than I could have imagined. And it, it blew the, my expectations uh, out of the water. And so what Jesus does with this parable that Todd read, as well as the next section about children, what he wants us to do is look at what the kingdom of God is like, and, and he really is wanting us to make a decision about whether or not this is the kind of place we like. If, if, if you, you're introduced to the kingdom of God, here's what it's like, and he wants you to answer the question, yeah, that's my kind of kingdom, or, oh, oh no, I'm not really into that. That's not really my kind of kingdom. What is it like, and is it the kind of kingdom you would want to be a part of? So the title of the message today is, what kind of kingdom do, do you want? And the, and the Bible really wants us to answer that question for ourselves. So I want to just briefly work through the passage, address what kind of kingdom Jesus is describing and then give each of us an opportunity to say, you know, is this the kind of kingdom I want? Is this the kind of kingdom I'm into? Or am I looking for something different? What kind of kingdom do you want? How about this? Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary? Do you want to be a part of a kingdom where mercy is necessary? 
If you find yourself walking into a doctor's office or a hospital or urgent care or the ER, you will find out those places are full of sick people. And if you go to the hospital and it bothers you that there are sick people there, and you might even say to yourself, what is wrong with this hospital? Everybody's sick. A hospital should make people well. And the problem is you went to a hospital wanting to find the kind of people you find at an athletic club where everybody's well and working out or pretending to work out or whatever they do. So you go to a hospital and you say, well, I don't want to be in a place where everybody needs treatment. I want to be in a place where people don't need you. Then you don't want a hospital. You're, you're in the wrong place. And what kind of kingdom do you want? Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary? What Jesus is describing in this, in this parable is this. God's kingdom is such that those who enter it and those who enjoy its benefits are those who need mercy. That's what his kingdom is like. God's kingdom is such that those who enter it and those who enjoy its benefits are those who need mercy and gladly trust God for his mercy. That's what his kingdom is about. A kingdom of humble faith. Trusting God because of a a clear understanding of our position needing mercy. So Jesus is describing to his disciples this occasion. He says, uh, he told a parable, and he tells us right at the beginning of the parable, just like last week, what the point is. The parable is designed to to confront those who trust themselves, and they are self-righteous, and treat others with contempt. And of course, when you read that, everybody says, oh, thankfully that's not me. But let's take a look at it. So he describes two individuals, and he's contrasting the way these two individuals are approaching God with prayer. So let's look at the first person. The first person he talks about is a Pharisee. So a Pharisee is a person who trusts God of the Old Testament, but isn't really trusting God for salvation as Jesus is offering it. He wants God to save him because he's meeting uh, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament law code. Now, if you were to read his Old Testament closely, he'd realize you can't get saved by following the regulations of the Old Testament law code, but that was the goal of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, they attempted to work very, very diligently to follow the Old Testament law code very, very closely, and it turns out they were pretty good at it. They weren't perfect, but they were pretty good at it. In fact, we might say they were really good at it. If there was a varsity letter for being religious, the Pharisees would have it. They might even be able to get a Division I scholarship for religion because they were that good at being religious. So this is how this Pharisee approached God. The two men went up to the temple to pray. That's where you go to pray, because that's where God's presence was understood to be. One Pharisee, this Pharisee went to go, and as well as a tax collector. Look at what the Pharisee does. You've read this before, but let's be reminded. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the tax collector here, a couple of things you should pay attention to about his prayer. 
Number one, we should pay attention to the fact that this prayer is focused primarily on himself. Notice how many times he says, I. I think it's at least four times in there. I am thankful, God, for me, me, me. I am so grateful, God, that I am the most amazing person I have ever met. This is really what he's doing. He's praying to God a prayer of gratitude for being so great. And remember, he is a Pharisee. He assumes that his greatness is coming from his ability to follow the law code closely. And so he is grateful to God for everything the Pharisee has done. He thanks the Lord for two ways in which he is great. Number one, he's thankful for the things he has managed not to do. He is not like other people. He's not an extortioner. Congratulations. You don't extort people. I mean, let's set the bar kind of high, I guess. He's not an extortioner. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He doesn't cheat anybody. That's a good thing. He's not an adulterer. He's, he, he's not even like this tax collector. Of course, tax collectors are well known for being cheats and sinful and swindlers. So the first thing the Pharisee is grateful for is all of the things he hasn't done wrong. Now, it's not here, but this is just an aside. This is just a freebie for you. We're always grateful for the sins we haven't done that we don't have a problem doing. This is the way we're grateful. Lord, I am so grateful I am not an alcoholic. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things you do that you're not grateful about, but we pick the things that we're grateful about that we, by nature, don't do because we all struggle in many, many ways, don't we? And everybody's different. And so the way we feel better about ourselves is we look for the things that we tended by nature do good Look at the person next to us and say, well, at least I'm not like that guy. And that's what the Pharisee is doing, comparing himself to others and picking and choosing the categories with which he's going to evaluate whether or not he's good enough. So he's grateful for these things of which he doesn't do that make him feel really, really righteous, really, really good. Like he can boldly stand before God and, and expect God's favor. More than that, he's also grateful for the ways in which he shows his religion. He fasts twice a week. This is way more fasting than the Old Testament required. The Old Testament, in fact, if you really look at it, only required a fast once a year. I'm doing that, just so you know. And even that, I'm going to cheat and eat a little when nobody's looking. So this guy's fasting twice a week. And, 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 and denying himself food as a means to... Uh, show, his, uh, show his righteousness. Now, we should also note that some of these Pharisees, when they fasted, Jesus makes note of this later, when they fasted, they wanted to make sure everybody knew they were fasting. They would walk around, oh, I'm so hungry, it's Tuesday, fast day. I'm so hungry. No, don't offer me any food. If you make me sin, you'll be judged. Oh, man, that, look, that falafel looks really good. Yeah, that's what they might do. That's what I want everybody to know. Of course, Jesus, when he talks about fasting, he says, when you decide to fast, be sure to put your clothes on, put a smile on your face, do your hair up, make sure that nobody knows you're fasting so that your fasting can be an act of worship between you and God alone. The Pharisees didn't do that. So one of the things he did a lot was he fasted twice a week, which was, which was ultra-religious. Here's the thing you might think about that this Pharisee probably didn't think about theologically. If you could follow the law and it would make you righteous before God, why would you need to do more? That's your way of saying, I can become more righteous than God. 
Because in order to have a relationship with God, you have to be as righteous as God. If you're not as righteous as God, if you stand in the presence of God, you die. So if following the law can make you as righteous in God, as God, why would you do more than the law? You wouldn't need to. It doesn't make any sense. But that's because this sort of religious obligation doesn't make any sense. It's not intended to actually bring about a relationship with God. It's intended to impress others and make the individual feel good about themselves. So one of the things he did is he fasted twice a week. Second thing he did, he gives tithes of all that he got. So, so when the, the call came to make the donation, he would write the check. And he made sure that if he had income from fields or if he had income from donations, if he had income from any of the ways that he might earn income, and Pharisees generally were very, very wealthy, if he had income, he would make sure that he tithed an appropriate amount on that income as an, a way of showing God he's really, really good. I can buy God's righteousness by writing a check. A couple of things about that. First of all, the Pharisees were really, really good at donating stuff they still got to use. So what they would do is they would donate stuff, because you were required to set a certain amount of money aside to care for your parents. It was called the parent social security. And so you would have to set aside a certain amount. So what Pharisees were really, really good at, the money they would normally provide for their mom and dad who couldn't care for themselves, they would say, oh, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. I dedicated that to the Lord, so it's now Corbin. I can't touch it. So he dedicates it to the, as Corbin, but there were rules around whether or not you could use the Corbin. So mom and dad can't use it, but I can go through some loopholes to still use the stuff that was supposed to be for mom and dad. So what he could do is he could write on his tax form, I donated my stuff to mom and dad to the temple and still use it. That's pretty handy. This is what he, so he would tithe. He would give. He was allegedly generous. We know most Pharisees weren't. They were greedy. But he at least had the, the way of appearing generous. This Pharisee wanted a kingdom not where mercy ruled the day, not where everybody showed up because they needed something from God. This Pharisee wanted a kingdom that you earned your way into and you established your presence in this kingdom because of religious merit. That's the kind of kingdom this Pharisee wanted. A kingdom where you are good, and that way only good people are there. It's a kingdom not where mercy is necessary, but at, at most where we minimize how much mercy is needed. If, if, if mercy is going to be required, because everybody admits they, have to, they sin sometimes, the, the Pharisee is going to try to have a religion where mercy is needed to the, the minimum possible amount. Jesus then contrasts this Pharisee with the tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off. Let's talk a little bit about posture for prayer. Both of these guys are, are standing, but their posture is important. How do people pray in the Bible in terms of their posture? Just about every possible posture. There are people who pray standing. There are people who pray on their knees. There are people who pray with their face in the dirt. There are people who pray laying sprawled out on the dirt. There are people who pray while laying sprawled out in the belly of a fish. An entire chapter of the Bible is a prayer done while in a fish. You say, well, maybe that's what's wrong with my prayer. I need to go get eaten <laughs> by a fish. The prayer is done lots of different ways. 
There are times where people in the presence of God are told to take off their sandals. There are times where people in the presence of God were told to get up off the ground. What are you doing on your face? There are lots of different ways people pray. There are times people pray out loud with their eyes open. There are times people pray completely silent, and God still hears. And there are times people pray silent, but with their lips moving and are accused of being drunk. These are all the ways people pray. The posture is not what matters here. So we're not going to take out of this. Good people stand, sit, kneel, uh, do the thing with the hands. Why do we close our eyes and fold our hands when we pray? Keep us focused. And, and you, oh, that's for kids and, and the guys. <laughs> if you're like me, this is, just, this is a freebie. I don't know why we're on this. If you're like me and they say, bow your head, close your eyes, and pray, and that's your cue to go to sleep. Is that you, if you're like me? Yeah, this is just where I'm at. I rarely close my eyes when I pray because I will be asleep so quickly. And because most of my prayer time is in my car. And it's just, <laughs> it's just not a good idea. You do not have to close your eyes when you pray. If you like closing your eyes when you pray, knock yourself out. If you like closing one eye, I don't care. The issue is the heart here. So the, the posture, the contrast between the Pharisee and the, the tax collector in their posture is intended to help us view their heart, not their posture. What it's showing us is what's going on in the inner person. So look at the tax collector. Likely the Pharisee had a much closer spot in the temple than the Pharisee, Likely the, or the tax collector. The Pharisee probably could have been relatively close to the holy place, whereas the tax collector is a sinner a known reprobate, would likely have to be out in the court of the peoples a little bit further away, but they must have been close enough that they both could be observed. One could see the other. Here is the tax collector's prayer. Standing far off, meaning far from the temple proper, but in the court nonetheless, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. So his bowed head, not looking to heaven, this was a way of offering to God a recognition. You are righteous, I am not. I should not be so bold as a sinner to exert myself into your presence without recognizing you are God, I am not. You are righteous, I am not. He beat his breast, meaning a, a visible demonstration of what was going on on the inside. He wanted relationship with God. He wanted connection with God, but he knew because of his sinfulness there was no way for me, him to cross that bridge, to somehow get from here to there because of his sin. There was no tithe he could give. There was no fasting he could do. There was no resolution to stop doing naughty things that would bridge this gap. For him, it was, it was done. It was ruined. There's no fixing this destructive relationship. So he merely cries out in agony, have mercy God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was it. God, the only way for me to get to you, for a relationship to happen between you and I, is if you decide for your own intention, for your own reason, to extend to me mercy. What is mercy? Withholding punishment that is deserved. Like its sister, grace, which is bestowing blessing that is not deserved. Mercy is asking God to withhold that, that, that curse that ought to be levied on the individual. And he says, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. I would ask you to not punish me. 
just because I'm asking. What kind of kingdom does Jesus offer? Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you, this man, that is the Pharisee, went down to his, ju- his house justified rather than the other. So the answer to the prayer is contrasted also. Two people prayed. Two people sought audience with God. Two people sought favor with God. One of them received favor with God. One of them did not receive favor from God. One of them went down to his house justified, meaning the manner in which he pursued God was confirmed to be the correct manner to pursue God. And it was the tax collector, Jesus is saying. If you want into my kingdom, if you want to be confirmed that you get it, that you understand how Jesus works, how the kingdom of God works, you pray like the tax collector. Lord, I need your mercy again today. The Pharisee, on the other hand, had God say to his prayer, absolutely not. Negative. No way. Not happening. This Pharisee will not receive favor because he sought the Lord based on his own righteousness. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Let me just see if that word is correct. Yeah, it's everyone. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. God vindicates in the end those who seek him because they recognize he is a God of mercy and grace. The day of the Lord is coming. One of the great things about the day of the Lord is something we call the great reversal. This is where everybody in this time who is exalted will find out what they're really like without the Lord. And everybody who is in the Lord will discover what is really true of them in the Lord. And this is what Jesus is saying is happening to the Pharisee and the tax collector. As they go to their home, one is going to their home exalted as having stood before the Lord and found favor. And one is going home humbled, even though he has exalted himself. Now, just real quick, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet for this parable. As these two guys were leaving the temple, and people were noting, oh, oh, wow. And because people do this, you've been to church before. Oh, did you see so-and-so? Oh, you don't do this, okay. This is the only church where this doesn't happen. Oh, did you see the Pharisee? Wow, yeah, wow, that, guy can, that guy can pray. Man, I, I missed a couple of Hebrew classes when I was in synagogue as a kid, but one thing I do know, that dude knows how to pray. Do you see that tax collector? Oh, my goodness, so awkward. I wish that guy would stop showing up. Oh, my lens. So every, as, soon as, he walks out, well, as soon as he walks into the temple, everybody's standing around and goes, oh, here we go. This guy's here. Such a weirdo. So bizarre. Always going on and on. Lord, forgive me. Come on, get over it. How about you just stop sinning so you don't have to ask for mercy anymore? You know what? This is what Jesus, and Jesus is saying, as these two guys are leaving the temple, and the people are, yet the Pharisee is walking by, we know from Jesus' description what he would have expected. Yes, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. Bless you. He would have wanted to be recognized. The tax collector skulking off into the, through a, a side entrance so as to avoid any confrontation. One of these guys went home exalted, and no one knew it. And it wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. He went home having received the favor of God, the creator, the king of the universe, the one who established 
that temple. What kind of kingdom do you want, I guess is the question. Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary, where people like the tax collector are exalted, where people with issues and problems that aren't resolving in a timely manner are still favored by God because in their brokenness they continue to seek God's mercy? Or do you want a kingdom where mercy is unnecessary or minimized, where everybody keeps their nose clean and gets their act together? We only need to talk about mercy for the first couple of months of your salvation. What kind of kingdom do you want? A kingdom of humble faith or a kingdom of self-exaltation? A kingdom where mercy is necessary or we earn our way to God's favor. Look at the next little section. It begins at verse 15. Maybe you do like the idea of a kingdom where mercy is necessary. I hope you do. But you got to be honest. Do you want to kingdom where mercy is necessary. Again, I hope you do. Uh, but, but here's another aspect of this kingdom I want you to think about. What if this kingdom had absolutely no status to offer? There's no rank. There's no awesome and less awesome. Would you want a kingdom that, number one, is a kingdom where everybody in it requires mercy, and secondly, a kingdom where there is no status to be earned? What kind of kingdom do you want? A kingdom where status is ignored? Would you like a kingdom where status is ignored? Let me read it. Verse 15. It's a familiar passage, but let's jump in. It's short. Now, they were bringing even infants to him. Him here is Jesus. That he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. That is, the people bringing the infants. Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, sh- like a child shall not enter it. Everywhere we look in the world around us, rank and status are critically important. Yeah, probably one of the best examples of this in the military. Higher the rank, the more important, the more power you have. This is true also in education. Number one, you can get a number of degrees apparently. I've heard. You can also get degrees in things that matter and things that don't matter. I'm not going to say it because as soon as I make fun of a degree, I'm going to find out there's three people here and then spent 40 years of their life studying. I won't say it. There are people who seem smart and those who don't seem smart. I have a, a, a spiritual gift of answering every Jeopardy question as though I would bet my soul on the answer. Now, 90% of the time, I'm completely wrong. But I can convince people that I know the right answer by the way in which I can answer the question. So there's some of us who are really, really good at seeming smart. There's status in military. There's status in education. There's status in athletics. you got to earn your spot. I mean, think of karate. There's red belts, green belts, black belts, third-degree black belts, and all kinds of belts. Of course, there's status at work. There's entry level. There's been there 10 years. There's been 10 years, but moved down, not up. There's been there one year and moved up. We're always seeking promotion. We're always seeking status. We're always seeking to establish ourselves, even in social circles, in social situations. We walk into a room. What we're trying to do is figure out how do we fit in this place? Where is my role? Where is my seat? What ought I to do? 
And the question is, would you want to be a part of the kingdom of God knowing that status is not a thing in the kingdom of God? God's kingdom is one where status is simply this. So this is hard to think about. Maybe, well, it's hard for me to say. You, you understand, but let me try and say it this way. Status in, king, in the kingdom of God is merely this. Proximity to and closeness to God. That's status in the kingdom of God. Status in the kingdom of God is described as proximity to and acceptance by God. You have status in the kingdom of God if you are close to God and accepted by God. That's the only status the kingdom offers. You are either close to God, meaning made redeemed, clean, righteous by the blood of the Lamb, and accepted to God, how? because the blood of the lamb has been applied to your heart, or you don't have closeness and acceptance, which means you're not in the kingdom of God. There is not more close and less close. There is not more accepted and less accepted in the kingdom of God. Do you see? So that's the only status, is closeness to and acceptance by the king. There is no, there is no ladder to climb in the kingdom of God. There is no rank to achieve. There is son of the king or not son of the king. There is daughter of the kingdom or not daughter of the kingdom. There is not son or daughter of the kingdom and then awesome son and daughter of the kingdom. There's not that. And do you want to be a part of the kingdom where there is no status? Jesus is blessing babies. That seems appropriate. We think maybe he's running for office. He's not. The disciples are a little bit annoyed. They see this as a waste of time. And this is a cultural difference between us and then. Not merely time. It's our particular culture. We value children. And we sort of like the notion of having kids running about. Now, I, I can tell already some of you don't. Harumph. Get off my grass. Okay, boomer. Uh, sorry. It's terrible. I'm Gen Xer, so I guess I can make fun of her. Back then, the kids were supposed to be not seen and not heard, just not seen or heard. When the kids are old enough to work the crops, they can come out of the closet and help. Well, you know, what, what's the old adage? You know, put kids in a barrel and feed them through the hole, and then when they turn teenagers, put something in the hole? That's what I've heard that. There's a parenting book I read. <laughs> but back then, it was kids, you, you stay, I don't want to see you. You don't offer anything. When you're old enough to help the house, work in the fields, work in the shop, have a trade, learn something, when you're old enough to contribute, fine, you can show up. Until then, you're a waste of time. And the disciples understood this, how the culture worked. So why are we blessing babies? They have nothing to offer the cause of the kingdom of God. They have nothing to offer. Let's get some important people saved, Jesus. Let's get some high uh, politicians saved. The tax collectors are fine, but let's try and get some people that have some influence that can really help us out with this cause we're on. And here's Jesus praying for kids and babies. So the disciples are trying to prevent Jesus from blessing these kids. It's a total waste of time. These kids have no regard in the kingdom, no status. No, they're not important. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 3 helps us understand this occasion because Matthew includes a couple of other things about this occasion that Luke decided not to emphasize. Matthew 18, 1 through 3 says this. 
at that time, the disciples, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we see they're talking about status. Calling to himself a child, he put him, that is the child, in the midst of them. And he said this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who is the most important in the kingdom of God? Jesus says you've missed the point. You have to come like a child, not with status, not seeking status, never going to have status. If you're seeking status, how do I become the greatest in the kingdom of God? You've missed the point. You've already missed the point. You come to the kingdom as a child. This is, this is what he says over in Luke 18, verse 16. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the, the kingdom of God. Those who approach God as a, as a child are those who get what the kingdom of God is about. A couple of things we might note that are we could say about children. Children have simple faith. Children have simple faith. This is why it's so fun to lie to children. Because they believe you. And I've mentioned this before. Things have changed. The modern world has changed in so many different ways. When I was a kid, the men of this church would routinely lie to me, and they would never tell you the truth. The idea was, well, at some point, you grow up in life and say, wait, that guy wasn't telling me the truth. It might be 10, 10 years later. I'm kind of slow. Nowadays, if you tell a kid a tale, because that's what men do. We tell kids tales. It's funny. Uh, one of my favorites is from Calvin and Hobbes, that great comic strip. Calvin asks his father as they're driving over a bridge, and the bridge says weight limit 10 tons. And Calvin says, how do they know what the weight limit on, is on the bridge? Have you read this comic? And the dad says, oh, it's really easy. They drive heavier and heavier trucks over the bridge until it collapses. They weigh the last truck, build a new bridge, and say this is how much it can hold. And Calvin's like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. Okay, that's great. And see, when I was a kid, that's what I was told this kind of stuff all the time. And then I go to college, and I went, wait, that guy was lying to me. <laughs> so children, they have simple trust. If somebody in authority over them, somebody who they have affection for, a connection to relationally, tells them something, this is especially the younger they are, they say, okay, that's, that makes sense. They, they don't have an agenda. In fact, because of their, their simple faith and their lack of an agenda, childlike trust can be risky. So nowadays, in the modern age, we have to teach children not to trust everybody, don't we? But we have to, on purpose, teach our children. I know your natural bent as a child is to, to want to be trusting. And, and, and as we're teaching our children these things, aren't we sort of going, man, I wish it was that way. I wish the kids could play in the front yard and wouldn't have to be taught not to talk to strangers or not to accept candy or gifts or to say no or to run away and all these other things that are critically important. But it tells us something about childlike trust. And Jesus says, this is the kind of faith that children approach God with and this is the kind of faith we should approach God with. A childlike trust where we just accept the word of our king, that he's telling us the truth. He forgives us through his own sacrifice. Another thing about children, children don't necessarily feel, feel the need to contribute. Children will gladly eat all of your food. Children, and again, this changes as a child gets older. All the, we teach children to get rid of these silly notions. 
of just simply accepting food from, with, joyfully. And, and ch- for children, a status doesn't matter the younger they are. They just want to be kids. They just want to have fun. As they get older, we slowly teach them, you know what matters is being the best at something and making sure everybody knows it and making sure you have the, the top seat in particular places. Grown-up social status doesn't matter to children. Children gladly rely on somebody who is providing for them. They don't feel some sense of need. Well, you know what? I should pay for my own meal. I feel like I'm being a, a just hitching my wagon to this thing. If I want to be my own person, I need to provide my own meal. Children will gladly accept from someone who is providing. There's no, way for, uh, uh, there's no reason for a child to figure out how they can matter more. And Jesus has this child sitting there, and he is saying to his disciples, this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. A simple faith in God. I trust him because he said it. A willingness to unload my agenda and just wake up another day and say, wait, God's going to give me more mercy today? What does the psalmist say? Your mercy is new. I couldn't quite hear it. Every morning. Why every morning? Because you need it literally every day. Pharisee didn't, or at least he didn't see it. A childlike faith wakes up in the morning and isn't burdened with this overwhelming shame and guilt that you require God's mercy. A child wakes up and skips out of bed. God, thanks for the mercy. That's a childlike, simple faith. This is going to bother us type A people, but here we go. Because part of my job is just bothering people. If I can compare Jesus' kingdom to something we're aware of, Jesus' kingdom is preschool, where kids play games because games are fun. God's kingdom is not Division I football, where the games are played because they matter. And how you play and how you perform make a difference for who you are. And Jesus is saying with these children, the kingdom of God is a group of kids playing a game because it's fun to play games. Why is that possible? Because Jesus already won the game. That's the only way that's possible. All of this is derived from the reality that Jesus already had victory on the cross and when he rose from the dead, so there's no need for this enormous emphasis on trying to earn position. How are you going to out-earn the status of Christ who has died for the sins of all of humankind? What kind of kingdom do you want? Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary? Every single day, for every single person, and some people around you need mercy for things that are annoying and awkward and weird. Do you want a kingdom where status is ignored? Where, in fact, there is no status? That everyone who comes into the kingdom by faith in Christ alone, trusting in his sacrifice and his resurrection, is just as close with God as you are? Does it bother you? If you've been a Christian for 50 years and a guy gets saved, a day before he dies, he's just as close to God as you are? Because that's the kingdom you're in. The Pharisee, that bothered him. He wanted people to recognize he had a better spot at the table. The tax collector didn't bother him. He would take a kingdom where mercy is necessary. The children didn't bother them that the disciples were being being rude. 
They still got to see Jesus. Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary? Do you want a kingdom where status is ignored? A couple of ways to think about this as you think about whether or not this is your kind of kingdom. Here we go. Everywhere in our life we're taught to excel. And these are good things. I'm not saying excelling is bad. I sh- certainly not. Certainly being excellent at stuff can, it should be a significant act of worship. But in contrast to the kingdom, we excel at work, sports, school, marriage. You don't excel at marriage at home. You excel in terms of how you make people think your marriage is. We excel at parenting. I mean, we're not actually good at parenting, but we want everybody to think we are. We try to be uh, excellent at how we are charitable and the things we volunteer for. We like to be a part of things that are doing something that matter and are significant. And we can have an end-of-year report demonstrating tangible results. We want to feel like we do stuff in the kingdom and we do stuff in the kingdom that matter and we do stuff in the kingdom that matter and we do it better than anybody else. The kingdom is not just one more place in your life where you get to try and be awesome. It's not. That's not what we're doing here. That is no way to approach the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not one more place for you to try to rank up, get next level, do it better than anybody else. In the kingdom, we recognize the Jordan River has already been parted. The work has already been done. The cross has already been had already carried a body, the body of Christ. The grave has already been opened. There's nothing else to do that's great. All that's left to do is look back at what Jesus did and say, I want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be a part of what he is doing and have our life be an act of worship, not because we are awesome, but because he already has been. Second thing, I want to talk to a particular kind of Christian here today, and I hope this isn't insulting for everyone. Some of us are Christians who, I don't know how to say this. I'm I'm worried I'm going to get in trouble, Nancy. She's like, oh, you will. Uh, Are you a Christian who just believes it? This is not a bad thing. I just want to to affirm you in this. There, There are many of us where somebody says, Jesus died for you. Oh, yeah, I believe that. Well, I want to show you some archaeological evidence. Oh, I don't need any of that. There's, there's an old phrase we used to hear a lot. The word says it. I believe it. That settles it. You ever heard that? And in our modern ears, that seems so petty and ridiculous. Oh, the Bible just says it, and you just say, okay, I trust that. There is certainly... a a place for us to pursue understanding as it comes to the questions we have and the doubts we have. And I'm not saying we ought to be ignorant or uninformed or not pursue uh, clear thinking. But there is something beautiful about a childlike approach to our faith where we just say, oh, Jesus died for me? I believe that. I I trust that. The Bible says that if I trust Jesus, I'm forgiven? Okay. Okay, I'll take that. It's a a, a simplicity where we just wake up each day and say, Jesus forgave me today. Why do we have to have uh, mercy every day? Because yesterday wasn't as great as we thought. And there's something inherently beautiful about the ability to simply trust God in that simplicity, that, that unsophistication. 
or we just, like a child, God forgive me again today. Now, if you are a sophisticated thinker who likes complex thinking and, and looking deeply into topics, I got, that's fantastic. But I want to affirm this reality of what Jesus is saying. Faith is faith. And if you're able to hear the word and trust God, Jesus is saying that is a beautiful way that we approach the kingdom of God. And if you're not bothered, it doesn't bother you at all that there's all this stuff out there. And you say, no, I just trust Jesus. Here's the thing. You say, well, why would some, some of us who are very sophisticated thinkers, we hear that and we go, um, the clock is stuck again. See, that clock says it's 1130, so I, th I thought I had days. I'm, I love this clock. <laughs> Somebody's going to buy me a new clock. I see it. Somebody's writing it down right now. New clock. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Okay, last thing. Let, let's just end with this. Uh, this is something we should, that we want to drive back at because it was Jesus' point as he was getting into the parable. People who don't need mercy will treat others without mercy, always. Those who need and understand their need of mercy will extend mercy to others, always. How you treat others starts with how you see yourself. If you do not see that you need much mercy, you will treat those that you perceive who need more mercy than you poorly. That's what the Pharisee did. In fact, one of the ways you can diagnose whether or not you actually perceive your need of mercy is by looking how you treat others who sin differently than you. If it bothers you that people sin in ways that you don't sin or in ways that you consider worse than you, then it means you haven't really grappled with your need for mercy. That's one of the ways we can diagnose whether we perceive our need of mercy. When we look at the sin of others and it bothers us, then we haven't really recognized how much mercy we need. The clock is fixed. People who need mercy will treat others with, with mercy. And in the kingdom of God, that's a fantastic goal. Because in a kingdom where mercy is necessary and status is ignored, two people who both have need mercy and two people who aren't trying to impress one another can actually have a relationship that's based on the gospel. Because they can talk about their brokenness. They can offer one another encouragement. They can receive one another wholly, not because they've earned status with one another, but because they have both been shown mercy from Christ. And that's where a community of, of believers becomes fundamentally transformed. Is when you get a group of people who are so shocked by the mercy of God that they're not so bothered by the people around them who need the mercy of God, all of a sudden relationships change. We stop trying to impress each other, and we stop being bothered by one another, and instead we just worship God together because he extended such great mercy to us. So, what kind of kingdom do you want? Do you want a kingdom where mercy is necessary and where status is ignored? Then you want Jesus' kingdom. God, we thank you for the grace you have shown us in Jesus, and we thank you for the mercy you have extended to us. God, we are grateful that you have received us as we come to you by faith. That we don't have to earn our spot in your kingdom, but instead, Lord, we have the ability by your spirit to simply trust you for forgiveness. I would pray, Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you. 
that your word and your spirit might open their hearts up in this moment to put their trust in Jesus for forgiveness, that they would receive mercy. And God, I would pray for those of us who have been Christians for a long time. And slowly that sense of importance has crept into our hearts. God, we would pray in this moment you would give us by your spirit the ability to repent and confess and admit our pride. And instead, Lord, come to you with humble faith and simple faith where mercy is new every morning. And God, we would pray that this fresh understanding of the mercy of Christ would transform the way in which this body of believers operates in a relationship. That there would be no more needing to impress and achieve status and have a place. But instead, God, as we all receive mercy from you, we can come to one another with encouragement. We can know one another and be received as those who have received mercy from Christ. We thank you for the joy it is to know you. We can't wait till you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?